turn to the little letter of Jude. Right before Revelation, I'll address a text or two there. This is a a service where we focus typically on what God has done over the course of our year together as a flock. We're on the threshold of a new budget. What a great privilege it is to come to the end of this year and be able to see that we didn't meet our budget, we exceeded it, and God has been faithful, and we together have been sacrificial in our giving. It gives us a good time to rehearse together as we review ministry. This is sort of a this is shop talk, so to speak, but it's a good time to talk together about what the church is supposed to be and what it isn't supposed to be. More and more churches and church leaders are abandoning the mission of the biblical faith and truth for what they're calling an emergent brand of genuine Christianity. It may be emerging, it is not genuine Christianity. And it is worth a warning again as we look at what the church should be. In his latest book entitled A New Kind of Christianity, one of the leading emergent church leaders writes this. Brian McLaren is his name. He says, we need to understand that Jesus did not come to save people from hell He came to identify with the weak and the oppressed. Never mind that Jesus himself said, I've come to seek and save those who were what? Lost. Seems fairly clear. Never mind that nearly everything we actually learn about hell, as we've already learned, comes from the lips of Jesus Christ and his preaching. McLaren also typifies Jesus as simply meek and mild. And he was never violent, which redefines what he was doing with his homemade whip, I suppose telling the money changers to find a better spot in the temple where they could do better business. Now the problem with churches, by the way, like ours, and pastors like ours, according to McLaren, is that we take the Bible as some sort of disclosure of of absolute truth rather than, the emergent church would teach, taking it as a fluid conversation. This is just a a fluid conversation. You find yourself in it, and in fact, you continue it on. Don't get so bogged down in the words. Don't get so bogged down in the exposition of verb tenses and meanings of words. Of course, we believe exactly the opposite, do we not? He says then, of course, and it would follow, that the gospel is not a message of how to be saved. It is really nothing more than an announcement of a new life. And there's some truth in that. We believe in the gospel as an announcement of new life, but it's only for those who've been saved. And once saved, they have a desire for this life called Christianity. But to them, it's just a story. In fact, because it's just a story and we can't consider it all that absolute, what do you think happens to missions? Missions is a thing of the past. According to the Emergent Church, our mission isn't to evangelize the world. In fact, we really shouldn't be that rude. Um, Brian McLaren says, Christianity, and I'm quoting him, has a nauseating, infuriating, depressing record when it comes to encountering or engaging people of other religions. It's infuriating what we're doing. Nauseating and depressing. And he goes on to say, Jesus accepted everyone and so should we. That's universalism. And this isn't some isolated church leader, by the way. He happens to be quoted and commended by church associations, some as large as the Willow Creek Association and their leadership, which thinks he is absolutely the erudite leader for today's church. 
They are enthusiastic about this new kind of Christianity. And I want to warn you, dear flock, the underpinning of this popular thought line is the belief that doctrine should be developing and changing to meet the needs of contemporary thought. It's all fluid. And so the doctrine needs to change as culture changes. What's right yesterday is not right today, and we need to bring the Bible along. The Bible effectively needs to grow up to be sophisticated like our 21st century. That's why McLaren would write that although the traditional church of old condemned the gay lifestyle, he writes it should now be welcomed fully into this new kind of Christianity. And by the way, the original fall of man in the garden wasn't a degradation into sin, but, and I quote, it was a coming of age, a childhood lost and adulthood gained. Of course, this is universalism where everybody gets into heaven and he says it this way. He says everybody gets into heaven because God eventually wins and immediately creates by that language a problem, doesn't he? Who among us would say God doesn't win? He attaches God winning to everybody getting into heaven. God wins because God wins. And in his winning is the demonstration of his attributes, including both his love and mercy and his justice and wrath. Jude, verse 3 says, I appeal to you, I am appealing to you, I'm begging you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was, note this, in fact, you may ought to underline this in your text as it relates to this subject, once for all handed down to the saints. It isn't revised It was delivered by Christ and the apostles. It was handed down. You're holding a copy of it, the completed canon of Scripture in your lap. It was delivered. It it, it isn't under revision to match the corruption in, in all shapes and forms of the 21st century any more than it should have shifted around to adopt to the corruption of the medieval church. And so we have someone like Martin Luther, a converted monk, who in that period of time says, we have missed the scriptures. Let's go back to the scriptures. And one of his cries was sola scriptura. We have it carved in the pulpit because it simply says, go back to the Bible. Go back to the scriptures. And in that we find that culture out there continues to flourish in its sin and the church creates its culture by by the dictates of scripture and the more we follow scripture the more out of step with our culture we we find ourselves don't we we certainly do and it's been this way ever since god delivered through his apostles the gospel It isn't under revision. In fact, Jude goes on to write, look further, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. In other words, they said, sin all you want. It doesn't matter because in the end, God wins and everybody gets in. You see, this isn't new. It's old. And Jude continues. He says, and they deny that that is, these false teachers deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, he isn't the only Lord. He isn't the only way to heaven. He isn't the only God. He isn't the only one to worship. And thus they corrupt the gospel. They corrupt it. 
So I, I deliver, as we talk about what the church ought to be and what it shouldn't be, I deliver this warning to you to be alert. Whenever you hear anything like this, that Scripture is, is, a, is a changing, fluid document that needs to fit with the morals and the populist belief of our culture. No, that's just an old lie. This is a confrontation to our culture. And it may be offensive, but it is the truth that we deliver in, in love. Threats to the purity of the church's doctrine and practice are new. In fact, before the Apostle Paul set sail in Ephesus down at the dock, heading on his way to Jerusalem, he gathered the elders of the Ephesian church and he said, I know, I warn you, that as soon as I'm gone, it won't be long before wolves will rise up within you who will say perverse things and lead the flock astray. Acts 20, 29. So Jude says that the solution to that would be to contend for the faith, that body of truth. The teaching of the apostles. Contend for it. The word contend is the athlete who's, who's striving. The athlete strives. He, he, he strains to, to fulfill that which he's trained for. So the church strains to keep doctrine pure and true and delivered. Unfiltered to our world. Because that is what our culture needs more than anything else in the world. And so the primary reason our church is built around the exposition of Scripture, not only here but in every ministry, we want to see a connection to truth. We want to see a connection to redemption. We want to see a connection to reformation. We want to see a, a connection to relationships that are mirroring the truth of God's Word. Is because without the truth, we've missed what matters. Paul wrote this statement of absolute fact with irrevocable implication. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. That is, it is the breath of God. It is God-breathed. And it is profitable then because it is from God for several things. For doctrine, this is what we believe. For reproof, this tells us where we're wrong. For correction, this tells us where we're right. It's a positive word that means to stand upright on your feet. And for training in righteousness. Training in right living. So that the man of God, the believer, will be totally, you can render it thoroughly, or entirely equipped for every good work. Not some of it, not most of it, but all of it. That word equipped was used in Paul's day for a completely prepared rescue vessel as it set sail to rescue a ship in distress. It had everything on board it needed to go help those who were going to drown. Can you imagine that, that rescue ship pulling up alongside a ship, clamoring with desperate people, sinking, and, and the people on the rescue ship simply, they brought no lifelines, no life jackets, no lifeboats. They simply say to them, we're here to make you feel better as you drown. <laughs> Can't imagine that. That's the church without the gospel. That's the believer without Scripture. We have nothing to offer anybody except we hope to make you feel better while you die. The word equipped was used of a wagon loaded down with supplies and completely stocked as it took off on a long journey. So are we ready for the journey? 
Not unless we've been stocked, as it were, with the truth of God's word. So how do we dispense then this? How do we get this out? How do we deliver it? How do we apply it? How do we teach it? Through a multitude of ways. That's what ministry is all about. That's, that's uh, one of the singular purposes of the church in delivering the truth of God. Obviously the scriptures. Ministries and methods. Every ministry conceivable. Every method that we can come up with. Creatively, some we do for a year and, and, and don't ever do again. Some we do and they become traditions. Some we do and, 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 and they're good for a season. But understand, methods and ministries alone are not sufficient. They're just methods and ministries. Apart from the truth of God's word, they're just busy activity. They become church work and not the work of the church. There's a vast difference between the two. So when we talk about a budget, what we're talking about is the subsidizing of ministries and methods that are intended by this assembly to deliver the truth, not only in here, on this campus, in this area, in this region, and around this world. That's what we're talking about. So it becomes significant then. I was looking at some old documents of colonial... Recently, I enjoyed doing this because it reminds me all over again of what God has done and His faithfulness and how encouraged we all ought to be as He brings to us something of great trust, the lives of people to disciple and encourage and challenge and win and train. I was looking at some information related to our missions, our ministries, missions budget. Our church, I found this, was six years old, which would have made it 1991, six years old, before it had given a grand total to missions outreaches now, missions events, global staff. It took us six years to give a total of $125,000. That was exciting. I made little marks about how exciting that was as I noted that. Could God possibly do more through us? Well, I asked the administration department to calculate back, not our budget figure for world missions. That's typically just what we give to global staff. I said, can you figure out what real dollars amount to around here? Because we give money to, to kids who go on missions trips. We're giving money to Shepherd Seminary to train pastors and missionaries and world-class Christians. We're giving money to Wisdom for the Heart through our congregation. It doesn't come through Colonial, but it, it's given by... Can you just calculate what was given? What was given to missions trips? What was given to missions events? What, what was given for emergency missions needs? What was given to missions organizations and partnerships? And what was given to our global staff? They did the work and punched all the buttons and came back and they said this, and this is new, and I have dreamed of this a long time. In fact, I'm glad I asked because I didn't know what had happened. This past year, our church contributed in all these different ways, a combined total in one year of just over $1 million. Amen? Amen. $1 million. In, in 1997, we arrived at having given $1 million away. And now we're giving a million away every year. The outreach ministry is so critical because we believe we have the life-saving vessel, don't we? We're not going to slow down. We're going to pick up speed if we can. It's exciting to see so many people trained and share your faith 
uh, conference that we held recently, so many people involved in evangelism explosion now. Nearly every week I get an email from somebody who says, I got to tell you what happened as I went out or as I talked to this individual and as I was trained to share my faith and I shared it and, and, and I was able to lead someone to an understanding of the gospel and, and I prayed with them as they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I never get tired of that. Keep sending me those emails. Right now we have 500 volunteers in our church involved in some kind of outreach ministry. Whether it's evangelism explosion, whether it's teaching English as a second language, whether it's, it's our sports ministries outreach that's now impacting 1,000 people. By the way, half of them don't come to Colonial, which so excites me. Half of them are unchurched. And, and, and we're not, you know, I guess you could call it subtle evangelism. You know, subterfuge, evangelism, or, or guerrilla, whatever you want to call it, evangelism. You know, what we, we don't believe it's all that significant that somebody can bounce that ball better. Some of us can't do it hardly at all anymore, right? Or throw it through a net. But if we can offer that so that those in our flock develop relationships with one another, there's benefit to that. And those outside of our flock, now 500 some, who come to play some kind of sport and they're going to hear devotions at every practice. They're going to hear a testimony at every game. There's going to be an event at the end of the year where they're going to hear the gospel of Christ proclaimed. And every year we have some of them accept Christ and join this assembly. Now, bouncing a ball becomes highly significant. See, it is the method and the ministry with the truth of the gospel that matters. And all the while, the flock keeps growing. I wonder how the ministry has taken place, shape and form over this past year. What is translating into growth? Well, I've got to tell you, there's a lot of activity. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't say I don't know half of what's going on here because that would be a compliment to my understanding. I don't know a fraction. I drive by this parking lot and it's full and my wife will say, Honey, what's going on? I say, I don't know. <laughs> They could be in there voting me out for all I know. I, maybe we should go and listen in. We have every week, if you can imagine, I was given these statistics. It's all just briefly overview ministry. Every week, 145 unique activities taking place on this campus. 145, 8,000 a year. All of them intentionally designed to connect people to one another, to Christ and His Word at differing levels. Some are entry point events, we call them. We just want people to get here. We want people to hear somebody pray. Or some, we want people to get into the Bible and, and, and learn a little more. It could be women's ministries where three or 400 women are now teaching and learning. Men's uh, ministries where men are showing up early in the morning to study the Word or, or Monday night. It could be connecting through our care ministries where we get 30 to 40 phone calls a day in just that one little department. Every day, 30 to 40 calls with some kind of need, some kind of emergency, some kind of hurt, some kind of hospitalization needs, some news about a death, some news about a birth. Our church had about 25-plus babies born this year into its uh, congregation. Our care department, by the way, is talking about establishing a counseling center. 
training. Uh, perhaps some of you in this service listening to me in basic marriage mentoring and biblical counseling, putting you through the paces so that we can one day, our dream and vision is to turn around and offer to the community free marriage counseling. And what do you think is going to be the hub of it? This. Because saving a marriage is important, but saving a life is. And then when we save that life by the grace of God, delivering to them the gospel, marriage becomes something that can be repaired and, and reconciled. This past year, 500-plus people, about 560 people, donated 62,000 hours to children's ministries. I don't know how Scott keeps tabs with all those details, but he did. He told me this. The mission statement of that department is to partner with parents as they lead their children to know God, think biblically, and live wisely. It's what they want in the life of your five-year-old. What a thrill it is to see so many people. Right now we'll have 250 people working outside this auditorium dealing with 1,000 children on an average Sunday so that we can have relative quiet in here as we study the Word together. New ministries began in children's ministries this year, an evangelical Cub Scout program. I didn't even know you could do something like that. But they give you the ability to craft it to, to, to fit whatever the doctrine is you believe. Isn't that great? Because we have doctrine that we think they need to be fitted with. And so now nearly 100 boys and their dads, some in the community, they're hearing about it. They're coming here because this is a safe place to bring their boys to learn the Word of God. Again, new ministry. I love it when somebody comes up to me and says, have you ever thought about doing this? And I'll just let them talk. And then I'll say, you know, I haven't, but you have. God gave you that idea. You want to start it. They turn white. <laughs> we have to call EMS. That's how ministry flourishes, as we serve one another and serve Christ. Our student ministries, now ministering to 450 teenagers, middle school and high schoolers every Sunday. I don't know how many of them come in here. They have the chapel and they have their pastor and, and Bible studies. It's so exciting for me to know that, and I have a teenager involved in it right now, as they're involved in missions trips and Bible studies and small groups and outreach events. The solid preaching and teaching of the Word of God is the hub of ministry. And everything else is a spoke. It comes out of our adherence to true doctrine. It comes out of our belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. That God has spoken. And He has said enough. And we want to know what He says. And out of that comes this plethora of wonderful ministry. Music ministry, you see that just about every Sunday. One of the more visible ministries, over 300 volunteers and singers behind the scenes, volunteers and the guys and gals on the shelf that make things happen. And I got up here to read scripture at the beginning of the hour and you couldn't hear me and it wasn't my batteries because my microphone was laying right there. <laughs> so I was about to get on the phone and say, you know, guys, you need to wake up up there, which I wouldn't say. Not quite like that, would I? What's wrong? I mean, Sound guy came up and said, uh, Stephen, your microphone is on your shoulder. <laughs> Bless you, son. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> As you know, our community system has long abandoned requiring young people to learn an instrument or to join the chorus. And some of you guys, you learn the tuba. You put your parents through a nightmare. You're learning the flute, the violin. Uh, the trombone, but that was a wonderful exercise, and now some of you have stuck with it, and you're over here in the brass section. Some of you learn how to play the piano. 
Well, well, now that it's no longer required, what are we going to do? Because we believe, if you go back to the very foundation of the universe being created, there was music. Now, all music is not worship. The world has music, and they're not worshiping God. Music can be the vehicle to worship God. And so we believe that. And so we're committed to it, and our arts academy continues to teach you know, dozens and dozens, I don't know how many they have, nearly 100 now students, some kind of instrument, how to sing. And it's neat, too, by the way. I get to sit up here when the orchestra is fully set up. Today is the day off. And to see 15 or 16 or 17-year-olds that came up through the Arts Academy now playing here, capable of helping lead us. We've added hymnals. Is that counterculture or what? We've added hymnals. One of the blessings, by the way, of adding that hymnal, purchasing that particular one, is that allowed all our instruments to have sheet music for every instrumentation. And what a blessing, what a time saver that is. And, of course, we have chosen a hymnal that has some of the old texts that we can enjoy and the rich theology of them. And as, if you've been around here long, you know we don't sing a lot of the older music that is oriented to personal experience. We sing the older music that has to do with declaring the attributes of God. And then as we talk about personal experience, we'll sing newer songs. We have special musical events, by the way. Let me, let me, let me tell you about two. We're hosting the Kiev Symphony Orchestra and Choir later on this year. And that'll be a wonderful time. And then we're there's a one-year concert. Uh, we're going to host this duet. As these guys have come together and they're traveling for a year. We're going to have Steve Green and Larnell Harris here with us from that sigh or sound. You know them, right? Won't that be great? So that'll be a wonderful time. Singing and church go hand in hand, and we in, intend to pursue both the preaching of the Word and the singing of the Word. Our deacon flocks continue to grow with new households. We have added, in 12 months, 609 households to our flock ministry. The design of that was to allow people to join the flock, have a deacon, they could ask questions. That flock is not the end all. It's not the group to start the Bible study that meets weekly or monthly, but to point people to the Bible studies that we have here. It isn't to serve some particular need, but to allow that person to know we are serving that need. And so the deacon serves sort of as a triage doctor, as a switchboard operator. And, and they called every family in our directory when we began this 12 months ago. And we knew that we needed to clean the rolls. And uh, they got comments from people who said, I haven't come for six years or five years. They, some of our poor deacons got yelled at and said all kinds of unbiblical things to. And others, you know, were, were just encouraged by, thank you, this is what I've needed. We had people get answers to questions. We've had people connect to ministry in the church just from that. And since then, and by the way, we, we, we cleaned out, I think, about four or 500 households from our role. Uh, we don't believe you have to be saved. Or excuse me, we, we believe you have to be saved to get to heaven. We don't believe you have to be the member of a church to get to heaven. You thought you were hearing new doctrine. A new kind of Christianity was coming from me. You know, it's interesting, too, with all the people coming, and I know that's pushing out the 9.30 and the 11 hour, and we're, we're right now in that springtime when things ease up a little bit. And we're already trying to rethink what to do. Uh, with uh, the growth, um, because we know that, that there are so many people circulating this church that are, that, are, that are looking at this church. I have a record greenhouse. I had to cancel the fall session because I had fallen and broken my kneecap. 
So I canceled that. It was a large group. And I thought, well, we'll combine it with a, with a winter class because that's a small class. Boy, did that change. We now have a combined class of 240 people. That, that's a church. You know, I, I, it's, just, it's just wonderful, though, to see so many people coming. And you know what they want to know? They want to know what we believe. You know, there are a lot of church polls and, and, and uh, graphs created about 15 to 20 years ago. And I was really, I'd been in the ministry for four or five years. And, and all of this stuff was coming back saying the reason people go to church is because of, and number one at the list would be, they feel comfortable. And number two would be a children's program. Number three would be music. Number four would be uh, it's, it's easy to get a parking space and uh, get in. And things like that that I know are important to us, and that's why we make parking spaces so available to you. Okay? <laughs> well, I knew that, that it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right. This isn't why I ever wanted to go to a church. And that wasn't the kind of questions that I was getting. Hey, the, the reason people meet me down front, they usually aren't asking, you know, can you have a parking space for me next week? They're asking, what do you believe? What do you believe? It's interesting, Tom Rayner did a survey, he's a theologian, and, and did a different kind of survey with different kinds of questions, and he came out with a list about, I think it was five or six years ago, and I said, aha. Because that survey showed the number one reason people went to church and stayed is because of what that church believed. I mean, more than likely, you're here because you believe, or you're visiting, and you're going to find that you don't believe it, and you're going to leave. But you believe what you believe about the Word of God, and you want to know if we believe in the same way. So Greenhouse is an opportunity to tell people what we believe, in fact, deal with controversial issues. And, and one of the ways we do that is allow people to ask questions. You recognize these? If you've been through Greenhouse, you recognize these green cards because what they are are questions that are asked. And I thought what I'd do is bring a few along and tell you what people are asking. Wonderful questions from people really all over the map from every kind of denomination, every kind of background, who simply want to know what we believe the Bible teaches about any number of things. And I went through the stack yesterday to pull out uh, six or seven of them. Here's one. This uh, woman asked, I just read an article about a young man and his past life experiences. What is your thought and the church's position on the topic of past life experiences? I've never encountered anything like this before. Thank you. Well, past life experiences presuppose reincarnation, right? We don't believe in reincarnation. We believe the Bible is pretty clear in talking about conception, birth, death, and judgment. It is appointed unto man how many times to die? Once. And then the judgment. In other words, you're going to live one time and then you're going to meet God. So get ready in this one life that you have. Excellent question. Another question said, I've been taught that once you've accepted Christ, you can never lose your salvation. However, I'm confused when a person doesn't walk in the Word... They're leading an unrepentant life. They have nothing to do with Christ or the church. Is, is it still true in that case? Excellent question. Well, there isn't anybody that can say definitively that person isn't saved or is. We know what brings a person to salvation. And we can ask that question. But I, like you, meet a lot of people who say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some point in my life, I prayed that little prayer and I got saved. 
And I don't care about the church. I don't care about Jesus Christ. I don't care about walking with the Lord. I don't care about the Bible. But I know I'm going to heaven because I prayed that prayer. That's particularly an American problem, isn't it? Particularly in the South, where everybody you meet has been saved. But you can only wonder why the way they live, if they truly are. Well, John, by the way, answered it this way in his little letter. He said this as he asked and answered the question he was given about, now what about those people that left us? Was it really genuine? He said this. He said, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. In other words, we have no reason to give anybody any kind of hope that has nothing to do with Christ. Well, don't worry about it. You prayed the prayer. You walked the aisle or whatever. You're going to get into heaven. He says, no, what you need to do is challenge them to examine their faith, as Paul said, because more than likely they left us because they're really not of us? It's a good question. Here's another one. How does keep the Sabbath commandment apply to the New Testament church? It's a great question. By the way, every moral command of God has been repeated and reconfirmed in some way, shape, or form in the New Testament. But what about this one? Well, you need to understand the Sabbath commandment was a, was a sign given to Israel with the covenant between Israel and God. It's not given to the church. God through the prophet Ezekiel, in fact, I wrote this in my notes to read it to you. Again, I took them out of the land of Egypt, God is saying. I brought them, Israel, into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes, informed them of my ordinances, and I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them. This is a sign of this particular people belonging to God. And that is not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, The church is distinct from Israel. If you mess that up, you're you're into all kinds of confusion, as we've already learned in the book of Revelation. In fact, the apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, none of you are ever to judge anybody anymore in relation to, and he gave several things, and one of them was the keeping of the Sabbath. No longer. He couldn't say that to an Old Testament crowd. You didn't keep the Sabbath, you were in deep trouble, right? Right? You know what the truth is for the church today? Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. He's our Sabbath rest. That's why Paul would say all of those things, food, drink, respect to festivals, Sabbath days, they are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance is fulfilled in Christ. He's our Sabbath. And guess when you can worship him? Anytime you want. Guess when you can approach the throne of God anytime you want? Because in Christ, we've found our Sabbath rest. Great questions, aren't they? Here's another one. If, I thought this is interesting. If the wife has the gift of giving and the husband does not, what should you do as a couple? Get counseling first. We have this counseling center we're dreaming of. No. No, you talk about it. You have mutual respect for one another. Make sure you don't stifle your spouse. Talk through it. Arrive at balance, which God puts two people together to arrive at it. And one person alone typically does not. And give deference so that we can utilize the way God wants us to serve in the body to give and to serve. Here's one I didn't appreciate. I thought you'd appreciate it. Is speeding a sin? (laughs) 
It's a trick question. I believe in grace. But grace is costly, let me tell you that, okay? I'll read one more. I love this. In Greenhouse, I love the honesty. What was the rationale behind putting both men's restrooms on one side and both ladies' rooms on the other side? <laughs> rationale? It was temporary architectural insanity is what it was. Well, speaking of architects, we are in the process of talking with them. Now as we look down the road at our master plan... We'd originally thought, in fact, had been talking with them. We've just begun discussions with them, members of our elder team, of taking this back wall out about, about eight feet up and putting in stadium seating that goes out over the lobby that would give us room, we thought, for maybe 300 more seats. The 9.30 and the 11 are using overflow, typically now during the school year, uh, regularly. Eight o'clock is growing and uh, we've, we're trying to anticipate future needs. And this fall, we know we're going to have great, great issues. So we talked to them about that. Unfortunately, they came back and said that isn't going to work. Uh, it's going to be very costly with all the support beams that are embedded. And uh, we'll only get you maybe, after an awful lot of money, maybe 200 seats. So we're, we're going to the drawing board. In fact, we're excited about sitting down and master planning the rest of this campus and taking a look at what it would be and what it would mean and how much it would cost to, to do a number of things. Our, our kitchen is now serving hundreds of people during the week, and that needs expanding. Children's spaces and nurseries. In fact, Scott told me this past week that he doesn't understand it, doesn't know why. We don't plan it. We just respond to it. But there has been a huge growth of young families with babies. And he said, they're full. I won't even tell you how many babies are probably stacked in there right now in, that, in, the, in those rooms. I'd have moms popping up and running as soon as... We have playground facilities that need... We, we have an auditorium in our future that we need to talk about, and it may be nearer than later. And I know this is a shock, but we need to do something about our parking lot expansion, right? We're talking about putting more spaces out front, changing the curbing around here so that you can actually turn in while somebody turns out without having to be polite. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> These are good problems to have, aren't they? These are good problems. I remember being on staff at a church while going through seminary. And the pastor, and, and I was the other pastor, and the deacon sat around, and we talked about how could we do something because this past Sunday, now we, we have no baby, no babies in the nursery, no young children. What can we do? I remember sitting there, you know, just being prepared for ministry. Every church I was ever involved in as an associate or an assistant pastor was dying. This is the only church I've ever been involved in that's growing. And I can tell you that it, it's thrilling to see God doing what God does. This is his church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. This church is not mine. It's not the elders. It isn't the deacons. It isn't yours. It's Christ's. And, and we don't sit down and say, okay, now how can we get another 500 people squeezed in here? Or, or how, can we, how can we do this? How can we do ABs? What we want to do is intentionally plan to do primarily taking this book, which is the Word of God, and creatively, consistently, with effort and courage and faith, with you, 
distributing it to our world because they're in desperate need of it. They're, they're sinking. They're sinking. So pray with us as we talk about ways to accommodate those who are coming. Our mission remains the same, though. It remains the same. It's not going to change. We're not following some new kind of Christianity. We are going to expose old lies repackaged. But we want to go to where people are in need, invite them to join us, get on our vessel, train them, help them to serve Christ and the church and our community. And then together we go back out into our worlds and reach people. Our mission remains the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Father, thank you for what you're doing in this assembly, what you're doing with this flock of believers. Frankly, Lord, I am surprised we have as many people coming as we do because we take your word seriously. We focus on the exposition of it in here and throughout our ministries, pointing people to absolute truth which is found in your word. How counterculture, Lord, that is fast becoming even more so. But we know. We know in our hearts. We know by faith. We know by the gift of God in our lives. We know by regeneration. We know by the fact that you brought us to life. We were dead and we were blind. We were lost. And you took the initiative in our lives. You delivered to us and into our hearts the truth. And we have simply responded to you. We love you because you first loved us. And so we seek to be obedient to the Word of God in delivering the gospel invitation to everyone. And here on this campus, through a variety of methods and ministries and means to deliver the truth. Thank you for the ability today to look over our shoulder and though it's been challenging, economically we can say with praise to you as you've moved in all our hearts that we didn't meet our budget, we exceeded it. Help us to be faithful stewards, give elders wisdom as they administrate and, and develop, steward all of the resources, give the entire team uh, wisdom and insight about what to do in the near future and perhaps even the nearer future than we thought as we meet with our architects. Give us accompanying courage and faith. Thank you that this church is no one person's agenda. It is yours. And thank you at the end of a year we can say how grateful we are to you, our chief shepherd, for loving us, guiding us, sustaining us, challenging us, convicting us, growing us, and then giving us a heart for our world, which you are allowing us even more than ever to reach. Be praised and continue to give us the faith and courage to rise and accept the challenges of this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.